Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 487, air date December 13th, 2019. Reporting this to the cloud and ma- making it accessible. So anyway, good evening. This is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Uh, the reason I called this uh, session was because uh, there's some very, very important opportunities taking place in how to build a movement. And what's fascinating about this question is that Historically, um, there are movements that have succeeded, um, but many movements have been derailed by what I call the not-so-obvious establishment, which you may have been seeing me tweet about. So I want to sort of reset history um, so we can really understand um, or or relook at history to really educate people on many of the opportunities that were really derailed by uh, this a set of people called the not-so-obvious establishment, or more specifically, a force in history, which is really an arm of the establishment. And before I do that, I'm going to share my screen, because I thought it would be good to review sort of what is it we want and what is uh, of those people in power want. Um, I have Jen here who's helping me. Jen, I just want to make sure with you that people can actually see this. Are people able to see the white blackboard here? So if we step back, and we really look at it, what is it we want? Um, and I believe, you know, what we meaning everyday people, most people who care about their families, uh, other fellow human beings, there's three things that people want. They want truth. They want to know uh, what is really going on in the world, how things actually operate, what are the real problems, and what are the real solutions. Um, people want freedom and people want health, not only health for their physical bodies, but the health for their environment, the society, their infrastructure. And I'm gonna shortly share with you how all these three things are connected. It's, to me, it's been a lifelong journey to really understand this. Um, some of you may know, on a very personal note, I grew up in an India which had a caste system. Um, and to understand that journey is important to understand why is it I'm such a fierce fighter as well as my dedication to science and medicine. But I grew up in India in Bombay um, in the 1960s and also in a small village. I grew up in uh, Bombay, some of you may know, which is now called Mumbai is a world where it's a city within cities. uh, It's sort of in many ways, um, New York uh, on steroids. It's a melting pot within melting pot, many, many different religions, many languages, et cetera. But I also grew up in a small village in deep South India where my grandparents were farmers. Um, and poor village farmers, and my grandmother was a local village healer. But in Bombay, I saw the caste system was exposed to that, and uh, as a young child, and really wanted to understand why was this level of discrimination um, and why there was such inequity. So my path was really defined as a young kid who saw as me personally as a four-year-old kid, chased out of a home, not allowed into someone's home, given water in a different bowl, Uh, treated as what in India we call untouchables. But I also grew up in deep South India where my grandmother is a village healer, uh, practiced traditional systems of medicine, healed people, and she had no degree. So as a child, I was very motivated to understand the truth of the caste system, the political origins of it, but also the truth of medicine and where that came from. So I share that with you because that's what really guides me. When I came to the United States in 1970 and then went back in 1975 briefly, and that's when I had a, mild, uh, a significant inflection point because that's when I saw the differences between America, which had so much, and in the small village where people, my, you know, I had aunts and uncles living in huts. 
uh, very little, but they were enormously generous people. And I saw the same generosity of people that I grew up in New Jersey, working class people. And when I was leaving India in 1975, my first visit back to India, uh, as my grandparents came to see me leave at the train station, they were crying very deeply. I, as a 12-year-old boy, decided that it would be unfortunate if I didn't make something of myself, if I didn't um, make something myself to really do something for these people who had so little, yet they had such generosity of heart. So that was my inflection point as a 12-year-old kid, and that's what led me to my journey that I'm here with you today. So my journey has been to understand why there is oppression in the world, systems of oppression, and how healthcare systems or scientific systems um, were also uh, how you could uh, advance them, knowing that this, you know, woman who worked in the farm for 16 hours uh, healed people with absolutely no traditional education. So that brings me to, to this message of truth, freedom, and health. Now, how do we actually achieve truth, freedom, and health? They're principles. And we've been teaching this every Monday nights as a public service, starting um, on, uh, uh, which we've been doing this regularly now, starting uh, every Monday nights um, at starting December 16th. We did our first one on December 2nd, where we spend between 8 p.m., I'm sorry, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. We cover the fundamental understanding of systems. It's how you can actually look at the world to see the interconnections among things. And then 8 to 8.30, we cover a particular system. Last week, we covered what we called the immune system. Next week, we may cover the healthcare system. But the idea is to actually teach people systems principles and so they can really understand uh, this connection. So um, let me go back to this. So what we covered um, last week was what I call these principles of how we can really free ourselves by becoming citizen scientists or systems revolutionaries. And the, and the six principles to achieve truth, freedom, and health are the following. One is inclusivity, which means we include as diverse of opinions in this uh, discourse. Um, the second is transparency. These discussions, like we just did, we're inviting everyone to participate. We ask for people to register so we get their email address so we can communicate with them. Uh, but it's not backroom deals, which is how the establishment and the not so obvious establishment work. But inclusivity means inclusivity of diversity of ideas. Transparency means which we make um, the discussion open and not secretive. Third is systems thinking. This is what we discuss in our Monday workshops is to teach people systems thinking. Uh, this has been a way that's been in traditional cultures for thousands of years. You look at things as a whole, you look at for interconnections. But the other aspect of it is you, systems thinking is an approach to actually find uh, what the real problems are and what the real solutions are. It's the ant antithesis of this is reductionism, and we'll talk about that. The fourth is decentralization of power, which means we include people, we decentralize power to everyday people so they can participate um, at, at local levels. Fifth is freedom, which means we, it's related to transparency and inclusivity, but we are not here to censor people or do censorship, uh, which is what the establishment wants. And the fifth is personalization. We recognize every person is unique. Each person has a particular viewpoint. Our bodies are unique, our viewpoints are unique. My journey, from Bombay to India uh, through the as an untouchable coming to New Jersey uh, in the 1970s is, and why I am who I am uh, is very different than many people on the phone here. And I'm sure everyone has their own unique journey. In opposition to this, um, so just to be 
clear, we have, these, we have sort of the goal, which I believe is truth, freedom, and health, and then the principles that govern that to achieve that are inclusivity, transparency, systems thinking, uh, decentralization of power, freedom, and personalization. Now, in opposition to this is a very different way of looking at the world. And what I call this is their goal. And their goal is very, I don't think it's our goal, which is power, profit, and control, which means um, someone uh, very wise once told me that the opposite of love is not hate, but it's actually control. So it's controlling people at the minutia, which means you can give people maybe the right to own private property, you can give people the right to run private businesses, et cetera, but you control every aspect of how they do that. Profit meaning maximizing profit at any cost and meaning power over people's ability to distribute information, et cetera. And the six principles that our enemy uses, which I'll put all up here, uh, are exclusivity. And these principles need to be understood if we're going to win is it's backroom deals. It's a finite set of people think they know better. Um, opacity, which means darkness, which means secretiveness. Reductionism means you take a very complex problem and you reduce it to a single variable. So if you take the immune system, you reduce it to something like uh, the antibodies as being the only measure of success of your health, your body's immunity, or the immune system's immunity. Centralization of power, which means um, everything you do is defined uh, by using mainstream media, which is centralized, using the vehicles of your enemy to succeed. Censorship, meaning you curtail other people's viewpoints. You tell them that I know better. You need to shut the hell up. You shouldn't protest. You shouldn't go out there and say that. You shouldn't get angry. And them defining what is political correctness. That a dark-skinned guy from India should not raise his voice to a bunch of uh, corrupt politicians, or people should not yell at them, that they should sit quietly and accept and take it on the chin, that they should be quote-unquote nonviolent like a Gandhi or something like this. These are censorship models. One of the key things, if you study history, which we'll come to, is one of the ways the establishment attempts to do this is to control people's language. When a conqueror took over someone, one of the first things that they did is take over their language. That's the physical language. But the other way that people do this is telling people how to talk, what's the right way to talk. And what you'll find is this is really a form of the ultimate form of racism because a set of people thinking they can tell, oh, you can talk like that, but this person shouldn't talk like that. And it's very deeply subtle. And I would argue that the Educated elites are the ones who exercise this in a very polite way because they actually want to suffocate movements. And it's something that needs to be understood uh, if we're actually going to build a movement that's going to actually win. The other aspect of this is depersonalization. You, you treat people like a blob, like a statistic. So I just want to review this. If you look at this, this is the principles of how we actually win. We're not going to win by following the principles of our enemy. And there are celebrities, there are people who talk all nicely, will say, well, in some cases, we have to do this. Well, they're absolutely, absolutely wrong because this is how you uh, become what I call the not so obvious establishment, I'll come to that. But in my book, Climate of Science, I talk about this, how are truth, freedom, and health interconnected? And I think, um, there can be no revolution for truth, freedom, and health without a revolutionary theory. And I want to lay out the theoretical framework here. 
The theoretical framework is we begin on the bottom left, and you can begin anywhere, by the way, with freedom. Freedom is the ability for us to have open discourse, open thinking, open uh, discussion. And in the, when I, in, the, in the caste system or in the old aristocratic systems, we as peasants or we as a lower caste were told to shut the hell up and only a, a, a set of people know what's right for us, that they know better, they know best, we don't know anything better, so the discussion is always curtailed. And as a part of that discourse, what is also curtailed is scientific method and system thinking. So right now, by way of example, Chuck Schumer has a bill in Congress, I think it's called Bill 791, which is basically saying that there will be no more discourse, there'll be no more discourse on climate change, for example, because there's scientific consensus. And just to make it clear, you know, uh, you know, I have four degrees from MIT. I, have, I was probably one of the best science students in high school. Uh, I learned the scientific method. There's nothing called the scientific consensus. And so we have a lot of, frankly, idiots like Chuck Schumer and a bunch of people around them, what I call the vulnerable educated elites. These people are promoting this word called scientific consensus. And why? What has happened to education is the following. What has happened to research is the following. Since 1970, we have mediocre people in academic research. Why? Because following the passage of the Mansfield Amendment, so much money went into a political organization under the government called the NIH and National Science Foundation. So all the great researchers sort of left academia and who was left was mediocre people chasing the skirt of grants. So you have mediocre people who got very good at being salespeople, not really great researchers. So they are pleasing their masters in the government to get grant money. The other feature of this is so-called intellectual educated college students who go to colleges, who have a lot of burden in student loans, those same students have to please their professors in order to get their A grade so they can go get uh, jobs. So what you have is you have everyone kissing each other's ass in some ways. The academics are kissing ass to get their grants and the educated vulnerable elites are kissing ass to actually get their grades. And I saw this at MIT, I used to teach there, that you have very, very few people questioning something all the way up that chain. And this is something that needs to be understood that we have created a society now where the academic establishment can no longer be trusted and the way that they push things through is not through the scientific method, but through what is known as scientific consensus. That's what you're seeing here. So they curtail freedom, they don't do the scientific method, and they don't support systems thinking. So, but the way all of this occurs is to curtail freedom. Um, some of you can go online. There is a big meeting in Andover Public Library where a, frankly, a very dumb professor at BU was trying to, tell all these Andover citizens how climate change is gonna be devastating. And he starts off his slide projector throwing up a picture of SpongeBob Bob um, saying that the oceans are going acidic. And I being in the audience as a scientist, I said, what is the pH of the ocean? And he was stunned. Well, the fact is the pH of the ocean is 7.3. It is not acidic, it is basic. And then he fumbles and he says, oh, 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 I mean, it's getting less basic. So you have people actually manipulating people with language because the word acidic means something horrible. 
And then as the session went on, as it ended, when questions were opened, we, the guy made an obvious lie in which I questioned and the cops were called. That's, this is what's happening, that when people question, police are called. And this is not someone who's questioning some you know, truth, it's someone who's questioning false. The same thing you saw occur at the hearing, we shared a very powerful truth. Uh, they called me a fucking prick. Uh, a number of mothers raised hell and other people, the not so obvious establishment, try to tell us to be quiet. And this is what's happening across the country when the establishment is using the educated elites to tell people to be quiet. So I want to make that clear that when you really look at this diagram, they actually thwart freedom. So we can't execute the scientific method, can't do system thinking. So truth itself is suffocated. So that's this, this sort of a dynamic needs to be understood. So when truth is succumbed, you can, but when truth exists, you can identify real problems. And from real problems, we can innovate real solutions. And I've gone through this cycle. You know, as a scientist, I fight for freedom. Uh, I was one of the earliest guys who exposed Monsanto through a, three, a series of five papers. When I was briefly in India, I exposed the scientific establishment, the corruption there. Uh, with death threats, I had to leave India. You, you know, I'll talk more about it during the Q&A. But I've been a fighter for freedom. When I got my PhD, I was the only PhD student to raise up a huge sign at my PhD graduation, which said U.S. out of Iraq. Uh, since the day I came to MIT, I fought, fought for women's rights. More women could come, out, come to MIT, more poor students uh, for food service workers. So this is not theory to me. And, I, and we learned how to fight. But from truth... You can identify real problems and innovate real solutions. So, for example, if you suffocate, if you suffocate science, you can lie to people and say CO2 is a pollutant. What's well, not? You can lie to people and get the kumbaya of celebrities, everyone trying to push the Paris Accords is great. The truth is the Paris Accords increases pollution. China is allowed to pollute now 11 billion more metric tons, double their car, uh, pollution. And so what the Paris Accords is about is getting everyone to pollute, and then we're going to sell them carbon uh, credits, and therefore the price of carbon credits will go up, and a few people like Al Gore and his buddies are going to become trillionaires. We want a lower pollution. CO2 is not a pollutant. And so they change the entire discourse to point the finger at CO2. Same with the immune system model I said, fake science. Oh, measure antibodies as an ultimate symbol of uh, immune resilience. If you look at genetically engineered foods, there's no safety risk assessment standards. Absolutely, we expose that. So what I want to share with you is that going back here, that when you actually can do the scientific method, you identify truth. Well, the truth is we need to lower pollution. The truth is we need safety risk assessment standards for vaccines and GMOs. Then we can innovate real solutions, which really gives us health. So in the case of immunity, we need to build up our immune systems which means it's probably good to be exposed to a certain level of pathogens because we build our immune system. We need to eat the right foods. We cannot be destroying our immune systems by polluting the world, by glyphosate, which is Roundup. We're not going to increase our immune system where only a certain set of people are allowed organic foods and the rest of us have to eat garbage. Um, food is medicine. These are the things that actually increase health. So, so again, if you go back to this diagram, why is health important? Well, if you're polluting your body and you're smoking all sorts of stuff that actually is now 
25, we can talk about cannabis. The modern day cannabis is 25 times more THC than it ever had. It screws up your CB1 receptors. You're getting polluted. You have kids who are vaccine injured. Now you're creating unhealthy people. You don't really have resilient systems. So now you have weak people. Weak people are not strong enough to fight for freedom. Strong people can fight for freedom. So if you look at the cycle, you need to be healthy. We need to have healthy infrastructure to fight for freedom. With freedom, we can, we can exercise a scientific method to get truth. So I hope this is clear. I, I, you know, this is probably 50 years of work to get it to the simple diagram. Truth, freedom, and health. Without health, you can't fight for freedom. Without freedom, we're never going to get truth. And without truth, we're never going to solve health. They're intimately connected. And again, to review, the way we get here is to fight, and we have to fight with these principles. Inclusivity, transparency, systems thinking, decentralization, freedom, personalization. And I say this because when you look at, so I'm going to take by way of example, the vaccine discourse. You know, in three to four months, you know, I've been in the health, fighting for health, doing research in health all my life. The vaccine piece is something that's a long part of my journey. It's a natural part. In three to four months, we ran an international conference on vaccines. We started educating people on the immune system. We galvanized people to stand up and not take it on the chin by people like Health Choice and others telling people that they should, you know, uh, shut up. This is how they should do an, uh, a, a meeting. This is how, what protest signs they should carry. When to do protests is totally bullshit because this is a way of controlling people. And this comes to the last point um, and I, I'd like to open it up for discussion shortly, is this point, okay? When you look at this entire aspect, in history, there is something called the not-so-obvious establishment. And the not-so-obvious establishment is critical to understand if we want to win truth, freedom, and health. And what has happened with movements as I began in this conversation is they have been derailed over and over and over and over and over again by not the establishment, but their proxy called the not so obvious establishment. And this is why in the long march of history, the people who got it, they were able to create revolutionary movements and the people who didn't get it, either they were victims or controlled implicitly or explicitly by the not so obvious establishment to derail movements. So I wanna take, I wanna, part of what I promised in the Twitter feed is I want to make people truly aware of not the fake history, but real history. So let's talk about that. The real history. So let's talk about a couple of movements. I want to look at the Russian Revolution. I want to talk about the Indian uh, quote unquote independence movement. I want to talk about the anti-war movement in this country. Uh, I want to talk about the civil rights movement. And I want to talk about the movement, uh, many movements I participated in locally as well as globally. But what you will see consistently in many of the movements that were derailed was to take people's righteous anger, and what I mean people's anger, everyday people are bubbling up as change agents and divert them to the establishment. So let me give you an example. If you go back and look at the late 1800s, the early 1900s in the Russian Revolution, all over Russia, there was a czar who was the establishment who was oppressing people all over Russia. Working people all over Russia uh, independent of any party, any movement, in their own local collectives were rising up. Uh, soldiers were striking. Uh, working people were striking all over Russia. 
And there is a movement starting to bubble. Like if you start heating something on a pot, you start seeing little bubbles. Well, what did the establishment do? Well, the establishment through a group called the Social Democrats, through the Mensheviks, literally created the Duma. The Duma was a legislature. So their goal was to take all the everyday people who are starting to build their own movements on their own terms and drive them, funnel them into the establishment's vehicle called the legislature. So let all these people come and start, you know, screaming at each other in a legislature. It's a much more controlled environment. And in the legislature, there were the czar's appointees, quote unquote, uh, you know, being democratic. But it was a way that they took people off the streets into the legislature. And that was one of the ways that the movement in Russia was controlled. I'll give you a second example in India. In India, you know, the British came to India. The Battle of Plassey occurred in 1757. It's when the British came to India. Initially, they came to trade with the emerging Indian entrepreneurs, the French, the British, the Dutch, the British East India Company, etc. After 1757, the British said, well, you know, we don't need these middlemen. Let's occupy, invade India. So the Battle of Plassey takes place in India in 1757. And the British between 1757 to around the early 1900s, basically subjugate, rape and pillage the Indian populace. And that's how the wealth of Amsterdam, you know, England, Europe was built. But by the early 1900s, the Indian revolutionaries were saying, wait a minute, we want to have a good revolution like America did. We want to have a revolution where we kick out the British. And the revolutionary movement throughout India was growing by people's names you haven't even heard. And that revolutionary movement was occurring all over India. Well, in response to that revolutionary movement, guess who comes into the picture? Mahatma Gandhi. And he was given this aura as though he had done something great in fighting for the South Africans. He was an elite lawyer in South Africa. When you actually go look at the history, he didn't fight for the South African poor blacks or the poor Hindus or the oppressed. He fought for wealthy Hindus to attempt to get trading rights in the Transvaal region. And you can, this, these are facts, which no one, very few people go read. And he failed miserably even at that. So he comes to India and he gets embraced by the establishment Indians who were lovers, Anglophiles of the British oppression. And he gets sponsored by them. And Gandhi essentially is enforced, is forced on the people to be their hero. And, you know, he wrote, said some good things and, you know, they make him to be the saint. But what he does is the rising revolutionary movement in India against the establishment, he comes in as the not so obvious intermediary force, talking this nonsense about taking it on the chin, it's okay to get the shit kicked out of you. And he suppresses the Indian righteous movement to kick out the British. And you know what the British do? They create a thing called the Indian National Congress. Again, a legislature, a safety valve, to take all the brown people off the streets into the legislature. And Gandhi is used as a vehicle to bring all these, to transfer power from white men with crowns to brown men with white hats. That's what occurred in 1947. India did not actually have a revolutionary uh, change. If you actually look at what actually took place in India, India actually had transfer of power from, from the British to, uh, to uh, uh, a brown men with white hats. So white men with crowns left, 
brown men with white hats took over. That's what occurred in India. And for 70 years, India has had the most corrupt system because those Indians who took over actually oppressed their people worse. And that's the India my parents grew up in. So we need to understand that Mahatma Gandhi, all the nonsense he talked about getting, he told the Indians it's okay to get their heads bashed in. But he was imposed on the people. And he has become the aura of how Indians are supposed to be tilt their head, not be fierce fighters. So when I go to a hearing and they see a dark-skinned Indian guy speak his mind with ferocity, you have, quote-unquote, liberals telling me how I should speak, and it's really a form of racism. And people need to wake up to that because everyday people have a righteous anger to fight. And, and Gandhi was used to suppress that anger with all the nonsense of it's okay to get your head bashed in as though nonviolence is some great thing. It's not when you're being beat up. And so the Indian uh, uh, bourgeois, the establishment in collusion with the British created the Indian legislature, again, a safety valve, and they took people off the streets. Okay, let's move on to the civil rights movement and particularly the anti-war movement, which I just tweeted out, was a, actually a successful movement after a while. If you look at the anti-war movement in this country, when it began, in, in the 60s, going up to prior to 1968, it was really owned by the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, by SDS Students for a Democratic Society. And that movement was literally an arm of the Democratic Party. And they said that they were the peace-loving party. But as the Vietnam War kept escalating, and as you saw the bombing of Cambodia, as you saw the Gulf of Tonkin, et cetera, and it became clear that Lyndon B. Johnson was actually part of, he was part, essentially a warmonger, and you saw that escalate, uh, if you go study this, into the Democratic Convention in Chicago, the Democrats actually had machine guns on the stage because there was a huge riot taking place outside of the Democratic Convention, where it was essentially like a, you know, warlike environment. And after people got their heads bashed in, that's when everyday activists said, you know what, the Democrats, and these people have been misleading, at, misleading us, and that's when people broke with both establishment parties. And after 68 is when the movement took off, when people realized that the not-so-obvious establishment of the Students for a Democratic Society and the, and the left wing of the Democratic Party was not anti-war. They were actually for prolonging the Vietnam War, but they built their own independent movement, and that's when the war actually ended. Let's finish up with the Civil Rights Movement. You know, the civil rights movement, there were so many people's names we do not even know who fought everyday people in the streets in all sorts of ghettos. Well, as the civil rights movement built up, uh, it too was get, and there were two different forces you can look at. There was, again, the everyday people who were fighting on the streets. There was people like Malcolm X, who did not come from the bourgeois environment of the old Southern church of Martin Luther King. He came from the streets. He was considered a criminal, he's a drug dealer, but he went through his journey from nothing. And he became a very articulate leader. Eventually, he realized that people need to break from both of these parties and build their own independent movements. But he did not come from the Southern Baptist elite, uh, you know, uh, bourgeois infrastructure at that time of Martin Luther King. But Martin Luther King was made the more acceptable leader, and he was pushed on by the Kennedy administration, the entire March on Washington, if you actually studied it, study it, was organized by the establishment. Great speech, I have a dream, nothing against that. But 
what ended up happening was the entire civil rights movement was funneled into the legislature and we built policies that never addressed the fundamental issues of infrastructure of poor black people or for that matter poor white people in inner cities infrastructure a few bones got thrown out like affirmative action which created a black bourgeois in this country it never addressed the fundamental issues so the situation of black people after civil rights if you actually look at it was worse than before because what the entire movement was funneled into making Martin Luther King this great leader because he was acceptable to the establishment not someone like Malcolm X and what ended up happening was a few bones were thrown out and the fundamental issues of civil rights was never addressed and over and over again this has been the arc of political movements the not so obvious establishment in their political correctness in how they control movements is always imposed and they impose their leaders on people that a that someone who speaks their mind someone who's fierce they're told well we don't like his tone okay so they control language and that's how they control movement the last one i want to end with is if you look at the history of the labor movement in this country in the many uh, um, some of you may have heard of may day international workers day well international workers day did not begin in communist quote unquote capital C communist uh China or Russia it it started in the United States because this country had one of the most powerful working class in the world in the 1800s in the late 1800s there was a haymarket riots american workers were shot and in homage to them international workers day was created may 1st and and that workers movement grew into the 1900s very very strong workers movement and by the 1920s and 30s that workers movement was so powerful that when the depression hit franklin delano roosevelt was forced because there was going to be a revolution in this country to throw bones to that workers movement okay we'll give you the 8 hour workday we'll give you social security we'll give you some rights and it was a way that the legislature threw bones to quell down that workers movement and by the 1950s when the mccarthy era started it wasn't really against communism it was against the indigenous workers movement that was bubbling up independent forces and what we have today in this country consistently is the politically correct quote unquote liberal aristocracy which keeps telling people how to talk how to build movements and when and they should speak as they they know better i'm here to tell you they do not know better there are three forces now in the world the establishment change agents people want to build revolutionary movements and then the not so obvious establishment and you saw this in the vaccine movement we just lost new jersey and the same health choice group was out there telling people how to talk how to be as they know better and i will tell you this that those legislators in massachusetts saw defiance and if they throw a bone to us it's because they do not want to see a grassroots defiant movement building for not just vaccines for truth freedom and health and many of you know I'm running for US Senate and it's not just a Senate campaign to me it's my service back to this country my service back to my grandparents my service back to working class folks who I grew up in New Jersey we need to build a real movement in this country and that movement needs to blow away and get rid of the not so obvious establishment who has consistently gotten in the way of working people telling them how to be how to think and that they know better and most of these people some of them are nice people they may do their yoga they may eat good healthy foods they may eat organic foods but they're not going to tell me or you 
the tone of our movement because that is how they control movements and that is why we need to understand if you look at this word the not so obvious establishment you, we need to understand that the not so obvious establishment needs to be called out because they have been consistently the people who drive us to this path of the legislature i'm not saying we should not you know get laws passed but what i'm telling you is even any crumbs we get even any good laws cannot come unless we build a broad based defiant powerful movement and i'm not talking about terrorism i'm not talking about narcissism someone going in uh doing something you know throwing blood at someone all of that i'm talking about working people building a movement and what i see so optimistic and powerful about what's happening with this movement for health is it's working people coming out it's mothers who have intuition they have wisdom they get it and i have not seen anything like this and we must seize the day we must understand that the enemy is not just the establishment but even a more insidious enemy is a not so obvious establishment so i'm going to end here um and let you guys know you know our senate campaign in massachusetts is not about a senate campaign i'm not a career politician i'm a scientist and inventor and educator and a fighter and if people want to help us you can go to shiva for senate we're going to build a ground force here and we're going to win because we're going to rely on a movement uh, in opposition to us uh you know the democrats have a uh, marky running and you know uh joe kennedy the only thing this kid has to his name is that he's part of the aristocracy and we need to recognize even in this vaccine movement that i'm sorry bobby kennedy great guy you know the other people they don't own this movement and look at what's happened in 17 years they've lost they've lost they've lost they've lost they've lost they have not won and a few people cannot own this movement we need to create leaders and that's what i want to offer by teaching people how you build movements and recognizing historical movements have been derailed by the not so obvious establishment and people need to have the uh, get it and we need to come together and that's what's starting to happen um in the interest of making this up we have you can send me questions right here uh and i'm going to have uh uh hey jan you're still jan you can text me any questions right to my phone if you see anything let's say chat go here any questions jan do you want to uh let me see if i can make uh one second here Oh, I can see the chats. Here we go. Okay, thank you everyone. Uh looks good. Uh will you reshare the importance of health portion of your diagram when it's time for discussion please? I love what you said and wish to make sure it's right. Um yes, I've been speaking a lot about righteous anger and our need and right to express it. Uh okay, you're getting to what the movement needs to look like. We are the new faces in the movement and are making strides. Uh needed you in New Jersey today. Uh look, I would have loved to come to New Jersey. Um but part of what I want to do here, we've been organizing content and educational materials so we can train people. And I can tell you, uh we have to go long to win short. 
what that means is we have to recognize that if we keep the not so obvious establishment, they always want to make everything so urgent. Oh my God, you need to shut up. You need to please the legislators. This is what they do in every movement. Uh, we need to think long to win short. It's beyond just New Jersey or Massachusetts. Someone said, as a Democrat, has Big Pharma reached out to you to pay you to vote for vaccine mandates in Massachusetts? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, this is a tactic of the Masons. They subvert every movement and supply their own acceptable hero straight from the Albert Pike. How do we stop controlled opposition from derailing us? It's a great question. Look, the way we stop controlled opposition is to understand history. That's what I'm attempting to do here. Um, and people need to study history. And you will see that consistently the goal is to stop what we call a decentralized self-organizing movement and to always come in and, and suffocate it from above by so-called people who know better. Still confused at what you want us to do differently. Okay, great question. So what, it's not what I want you to do differently. It's what we need to do that comes naturally, okay? What comes naturally is for people to organize independently and to talk to their neighbors, et cetera. So if you look at the vaccine movement, it's been going on for 17 years. Well, in 17 years, how many conversations have taken place with our neighbors to educate them about the immune system? Educate them that vaccinations, one size doesn't fit all. Well, for 17 years, that has not taken place. 95% of, and, and, and I'll tell you why it hasn't taken place, because look at the results. 95% of people believe vaccines are okay. That means our neighbors weren't educated about the broader notion of the, the immune system model that is used today is around 50 to 100 years old. And by the way, I've talked to my neighbors here right in Belmont. When I go share with them, look, you know, many of them vaccinated their kids, but I said, did you know that the immune system model that's used to determine vaccines around 50 to 100 years old? They go, oh my God, I didn't know that. Then when I share with them, do you know they have 30 vaccines that they want everyone to take? They go, I didn't know that. We're not talking pro-vax or anti-vax. And when you come at it from that education, we have conversations. We focus on conversations, not legislations. The not so obvious establishments does not want us to have conversations. This is something that needs to be understood. They have framed winning or losing by a piece of legislation being passed. When history shows, it's always BS. Affirmative action got passed. How many people did it really help? Not that many when you look at the results. So it's not about winning or losing legislation. It's more how many conversations we have. So I would suggest to you, you know, Monday evenings, we're having our open workshops. We're, we're creating tools that you can use to educate other people. It's time that you have conversations with your neighbors. And the conversation should be not about pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, but educating your neighbor and bringing them in. Whether they completely are pro-vaxxers, it doesn't matter but to have a conversation with them. Imagine over the last 17 years, if we had had millions and millions and millions and millions of conversations where the discourse would be. Instead, a bunch of, frankly, I mean, the best way I can think about it is idiots who wanted to mislead us, told us, oh my God, we gotta get this bill passed, we gotta get this bill passed. And they told people not to pass out flyers, not to be on street corners, not to reach out, not to talk about autism, not to use the word vaccines. That's what they did. The issue is we should measure ourselves. Our success is how many conversations we have. It says S2173 goes to the full Senate floor on Monday. 
Uh, Linda Rose, is that you? Are we talking about in Massachusetts? Is that what you're saying? Joanne, shake your head yes. Is that what we're talking about? I, um, can you just write back to us if you can? Then it says, much of the power in the movement lies with the state groups. Why do you think they have focused so much on the legislators instead of building mass groups? Excellent question, Nathaniel. It is the fundamental question. I'll read that again. Why do you think they have focused so much on legislatures instead of building mass groups? Because this is how they funnel us, the people, into a bunch of corrupt politicians who are already bought and paid for. Massachusetts, as I've said before, has a third. I think Hawaii is the most corrupt state in the United States. Third is Massachusetts. And that, and you can look it up by the Public Integrity uh, Organization, which did a, their own, type in Public Integrity, and you'll see Massachusetts got a D plus, an F in lobbyist disclosure. These people are all corrupt guys. Meanwhile, a bunch of idiots are telling us we should go beg to them and thank them. It was really appalling to see people say, thank you, Congressman, for letting me speak. We don't need to thank them. They are our servants, but they do this so they can control the movements. And people in organizations like Health Choice were trying to move me down the list on the hearing, and they did this, and one of the leaders there did this to Brian Hooker. And you can, these people are masters of controlling democracy. Because even to give a hearing, the little legislative aid dweebs control who even gets on the hearing stage. So this whole thing is false democracy. So they want to get us in the legislature and they want to make a sense of urgency so we all get off the streets, we don't build a movement, we don't have conversations with our neighbors. Next question, what party are you running on? Great question. Look, um, to give you my background, I never voted for in any election because in 1984 as a student activist at MIT is when I broke from all parties. I saw how Jesse Jackson, a complete, you know, pimper, poverty pimper was running the rainbow movement. And at the last minute, speaking the lesser of two evils, if you go look at the election of 1984 is Ronald Reagan running against Walter Mondale. We as young idealist activists said, wow, Jesse Jackson, really is an anti-establishment guy. Well, on the floor of the Democratic Convention, he does a Bernie. Bernie, by the way, is a complete sellout. If you have illusions about him, we should talk about it. Jesse Jackson takes all of his votes and sells out the movement and says, we can't have Reagan. He's a right-wing, you know, um, guy who wants to, you know, hurt all the poor people. And he gives all of his votes to Walter Mondale. And that's when I saw the not-so-obvious establishment. So, so I never voted. So when Donald Trump ran, and forget about Trump as an individual, I saw in Donald Trump somebody who was at least willing to throw bombs at both parties. He was at least willing to be a disruptor. So I registered as an independent, voted for Trump, and then I ran as a Republican for US Senate against Elizabeth Warren as a Republican, because there was no way I was ever gonna get on the Democrat uh, party. And what we noticed was that the Republicans didn't want me an outsider there, and they ran a corrupt guy called Dirty Jeff Deal, who photoshopped a picture with Trump to fake himself as a Trumper. We exited that election, we ran as independents. No one ever thought we would even get on the ballot. Some people on this call, 20 of us, we collected nearly 20,000 signatures, unheard of in Massachusetts history. Not only did we get on the ballot, but we got 100,000 votes after they legal, illegally kept me off the debate stage. 100,000 votes as a U.S. Senate independent candidate, five times more than any 
ever in, in Massachusetts history. That's what happened. But we built a ground uh, grassroots campaign. This year we're running as Republicans. Just to be clear, you can ride a Chevy, you can ride a Ford. Our goal is to get on the debate stage. So we're running as an R, but our politics are anti-establishment and truth, freedom, and health. Next question. Um, when, when is your next call like this or event? On, uh, that's Michelle. On December 16th, which is this Monday, we are going to do an open workshop. Um, and then if you come to the workshop and you like it, we have an educational portal where you will get tools that in a portal that you can share all of the content and you can also teach others. There's no way I can do this by myself. You can't scale this. What have other states done that did not allow these vaccine mandate bills passed? Great question. Well, remember the vaccine model is a new model. Uh, states like Maine, after it was overturned, um, are now doing a grassroots movement. 90, they got 90,000 signatures and they're making it a referendum on the ballot. So what that means is, so the state legislators screwed them, one vote they lost. So in there's a yes on one against Big Pharma. Everyone should support what's going on in Maine. They collected 90,000 signatures. And it's, it's amazing that didn't happen here in Massachusetts for all these years. And so that means people came in and now it's gonna be a ballot question. The health choice type people in Maine called those people controlled opposition for doing that. Think about it. And why did they do that? They said, well, if you put it as a referendum, suppose we lose. You see, they are measuring winner losses by legislative losses or even ballot referendum. The issue is when you get 90,000 signatures, you have a million conversations with people. So the issue is they've already won. They've had, and they're gonna uh, win by having these conversations. So we need to stop brainwashing ourselves we need to have conversations. So I would say what Maine is doing is extremely important. What we need to do in Massachusetts is we need to build a movement. We need to educate people. And that's what we're doing. Uh, I just want to say thank you for this. It was extremely informative. Needed you an NJ today. Are we still planning to do the taxonomy project? Yes, Karina. So what we have is Dr. Dienicker has done the first pass of it. And we will be sharing that in two weeks. We've done it on hepatitis 1B, as we promised. And then we are finishing up a draft white paper on their risk assessment, which we'd be sharing in two weeks. We'll be calling a meeting to so keep an eye for, on for that. As a vaccine mandate bill in Florida takes place in January, what can we in the state do at this time to help bring more awareness? Thank you for your knowledge. Look, I would say the best thing is Tupperware parties, you know, neighbor to neighbor, conversations, what, by every means necessary, protests, hand out leaflets, whatever you want to do, but you got to make people aware. And number one, do not listen to these people like Health Choice who tell you when to speak, what to speak, how to speak. To hell with them. Also, are you doing more talks events here in Western Mass before the bills pass? So uh, if you want to invite me to Western Mass, I'll be there. Uh, this is an important part. You can email me at vdrshiva at vashiva.com or you can go to my website if you want to go to my personal website, vashiva.com, V is in Victor A, or to my uh, Senate website, Shiva for Senate, either one, and you can reach out. Would love to come share this knowledge. 
Uh, Shannon Seller says, so you think that we should put more effort into grassroots rather than going to the state capitals to participate in hearings? It's not one or the other. So this is important. The not so obvious establishment always tries to pit us against each other. What we need to do is, we had 600 people at that hearing, many people who were told to shut the hell up. Uh, Richard, who was the sanitation worker, he's a working class guy. Richard's like, what the hell are we doing waving our hands like this? That's like being told by the establishment what to do. We don't owe them anything. We should have had 10,000 people and we should have been raising hell. We should go to hearings, but we should go with firepower, not being manipulated. So when we go to hearings, it's an expression of a larger movement. The hearings are not the means and an end unto themselves. I hope I'm being clear. The not so obvious establishment wants to tell us that the hearings are the means to the end. And those people who got upset at the, and by the way, the people who got upset as our, at our fierceness and our defiance are really stupid people, sorry to say. Because those same people did not say anything at Mahoney, who's a corrupt politician, calling me a fucking prick. And that says it all. They're okay with a dark-skinned Indian guy, probably the only guy, and I'm not going to pull the race card here, but it is racist. Because I didn't see a lot of black folks there. Did you? I didn't see anyone. But it was okay to call, I consider myself a pretty eminent scientist. I get invited to conferences all over the world, being called a fucking prick by a guy who's very corrupt, and health choice and those people kept their mouths shut. They didn't say anything, but they had the audacity to try to tell me and others what tone we should speak in. The content and education is definitely needed. Well, we have the content, we have the portal. Uh, next week, Jennifer Bennett is gonna, uh, we have about 350 people came to our first session. We have 75 people on portal training where you will get access to this content. Uh, to volunteer and support what we're doing in Massachusetts. And that content is being made freely available. We're not charging 650 bucks. We're not building a <laughs> profit thing about educating people there. It seems like this vaccine movement is filled with a lot of people who are making money off of it, by the way, is from what I've seen. Um, when we were in DC for Vive, we met with my congressman. They asked him to vote no on the tracking bill. And not only did he not vote, on he signed on as a co-sponsor. How should we proceed? You should expose this congressman and should expose his corruption. And look, there was a, a wonderful movement which started off great in Italy called the Five Star Movement. Uh, it, it's gotten uh, attacked, but when it started, this was an, uh, a movement that came out of nowhere. As you know, Italy's very corrupt, mafia, gangsters run that political system. The Five Star Movement came out of nowhere. What they did was they did built local movements. So one of the things they did in the center of Rome was they had this huge protest and they put the picture of every politician up and all their corruption. We need to expose these people. That's what we need to do publicly and embarrass them because these people do not work for you and me. They don't deserve our respect. Can you please contact John Roberts? Can we explore his ideas in a small group? I, I, I'm sorry, I'm very, um, Michelle Hitchinson, I think wrote that. I'm not sure who John Roberts is, but would love to do so. I think there's a big disconnect between East and West Coast. Uh, well, look, the West Coast, uh, the celebrities on the West Coast misled that movement. They told people how to be, you know, Botoxed, whatever, thinking they're the ones who own the movement. And uh, they led that movement down its dead end. 
uh, we need to build a vociferous movement. Love us, Linda Rose, love us all getting the training, but how do we get you to debate pan publicly? They think ours is bad science, but they have paid for science. Look, uh, these people do not want debates. Um, uh, a, a very wonderful family, husband and wife Jessica Kadu and her husband Ayn, they independently pulled off the debate we had at the Connecticut legislature. And all the three groups there were upset with them that they did that. They went and did it themselves. They invited me and you can see the Connecticut, there was three of us against two of them. It was a great conversation. And what needs to happen is people independently need to do this. One of the things we could do is we could start a social media campaign, me and Pam, I mean, these are meme ideas, and start proliferating it widely and say, why doesn't this guy debate Dr. Shiva? But I'm saying there, that's just an example, but we need to go direct, we need to be loud, we need to be defiant. Facebook has been the primary place to gather and talk. It's just preaching to the choir, that's true. Uh, where do we go to learn the true history? Great question. Well, I, I attempted to do this. There are great books. Uh, if you want to read a great autobiography, go read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Great, great book. Uh, if you want to read uh, direct sources, go read the logbook of Columbus when he came to Americas, particularly uh, when he landed in October. Uh, there's a great book called The Rise and Fall of the East, East India Company written by Ramakrishna Mukherjee. Great book that really looks at the history of, uh, you know, the Indian movement. Um, if you send me an email to Dr. Shiva at VA Shiva, I'll give you some book recommendations. We'll put it up on the portal. Regarding the health choice group, I think it's really important to differentiate between the national leaders and local Massachusetts. The local leaders are well-liked, and as far as I know, their hearts are in the right place. Well, look, this is not a personality issue. There are a lot of people who are amazing people, nice people. They have vaccine injured kids. We sympathize with them. It's not about whether they're nice people or not so nice people. The issue is you have to look at their results. And the fact is many of these people consistently have been pushing legislature, 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 and choking the movement. And they may be doing it consciously as a part of the CDC and Big Pharma because they want to kiss ass to Congress people and legislatures because they have backroom deals, they get favors. And just to let you know, look, I lived out in Hollywood for three years. I've been a part of the military industrial complex. I can tell you, this is not like some conspiracy, okay? As people like to say, this is all about money. It's all about incestuousness. It's all about being in the right circles. If you live in Malibu, there's a wonderful restaurant called Nobu owned by Robert De Niro and a Israeli arms owner, okay? It's where all the stars hang out. I used to get VIP treatment there. Well, it's the same clique of people, guys. And all these people are the same liberal elites who also are part of some movements. And everyone wants to go to Nobu to be seen. It's a very incestuous world. So none of them want to be exposed or be out of those cliques. When I used to live in New York, you had the Republicans and the Democrats. I mean, I used to go to some of the wonderful elite parties. Well, you know what? Democrats and Republicans all love Monsanto and they would talk to justify it. So people need to get their head out of their ass and realize that the kinds of people you're talking about move in certain circles that they're all about being in the in crowd. It's like very, very bad high school, okay? Nothing has changed. And they take advantage of working. Yeah, they may be nice people, 
but they're really not that nice because they want to derail movements and they don't want to trust you and they want to take power away from you. 100%, but the people want to hear it from doctors and scientists. Not, that's not true. Let me give you an example, okay? This is brainwashing. If you look at the climate change movement, the reason that 50% of the people don't believe in it because everyday working people who work with their hands, nurses, plumbers, even engineers, they don't buy the climate change bullshit because it's all bullshit science. You know who buys the climate change bullshit? The stupid educated elites because they're the vulnerable ones like idiots like Ocasio-Cortez. I hate to say that. They don't understand science. They just believe the narrative that's told to them. They don't understand that the science itself is fake. But everyday working people have to work in nature. People like me have to build stuff. We know that these are very complex systems, that CO2 is not, we just know it in our guts. So we have to get away from this attitude of entrusting ourselves to doctors. In fact, I would say don't believe scientists. Let me tell you why. Believe engineers, believe plumbers. You know why? Engineers, we have to make something. And if we don't make something right, it falls out of the sky called an airplane or a pipe burst. Scientists take data and they fit a line to a curve. Okay? Um, I want to show you, since someone just asked, um, I'll show you this very interesting curve I shared earlier. This is, by the way, you know what this is? This is the, in the IPCC forecast, people are saying, oh my God, the Arctic is going to melt by 2100. Well, to just give you an idea, you know what evidence in science is? Evidence, in order for something to be evidence, it has to be unambiguously predicted. Unambiguous predictions. If someone says, oh, we have this mathematical model and it predicts all the ice caps are going to melt, well, the prediction has to be unambiguous. So let me show you in the IPCC report. This is from 2011 from Eisenman. You know what these curves are? There's one, there's 21 different curves. So one curve here predicts that the ice is all going to melt by 2100 in the Arctic. This curve here, the blue one says the ice is going to be still at about 100%. And you see all these flavors? This is not unambiguous prediction. This is called bogus science. You have, it's like going to the ice cream store, Baskin Robbins, choose your flavor, okay? This is fake science because evidence is unambiguous prediction. Evidence is not this nonsense. And this is what's in the IPCC report. This would be same as Isaac Newton predicting the model of the gravitational force of the earth and an apple coming with 40 different predictions. One of his predictions would say the apple, you know, falls from the tree and it's suspended at one feet. Another one says it'll be suspended at two feet, 30 feet. And another one says it'll hit the ground. You follow what I'm saying? F equals G times M1 times M2 over R squared is a law that gives you unambiguous predictions. This bullshit here, which is what I have to call it, is total bullshit. It's bullshit. It's indeterminate science. But this is shouted down everyone's throats by people at MIT who are making $40 million off climate change. Okay? These people chase the skirt of academic grants. The same people 
who will never speak out against vaccines, who will never speak out against GMOs. Next ones, we need to, uh, how do we show people evidence that vaccines are not safe for everyone? And how do we show them that other evidence they have, uh, they have that vaccines are safe? Okay, great question. The best way to do this, there's two diagrams that I've shared, if you guys have seen, I'll share it again. This is probably the simplest way that you can explain to people, let me go over to this, the concept of the ludicrousness of where we are with the vaccine model. Um, Michelle, is, is, it, is, is it being shared? No. Okay, let me go back. Uh, let, me be, let me share it. Okay, uh, I will share this, but you can take a pen and paper and feel, feel free to copy this right now. You can take a napkin. This is the 50-year-old model of the immune system, that you get a pathogen, it hits your innate immune system, box one, and then, then it turns on your adaptive immune system and you get antibodies and great, your body is protected, okay? Anyone should be able to draw this on a paper napkin and I deem you as a citizen scientist if you can do this, okay? I have a PhD from MIT and I anoint you a citizen scientist, okay? You just got anointed by Dr. Shiva Iadure. Now, what they say is that when you get a vaccine, that you're gonna subvert the innate immune system and we are gonna hit the adaptive and you get antibodies, okay? And voila, you're protected, great. Your immune system is in great shape. So everyone get this? This is the modern quote unquote bullshit science of the immune system. So everyone get this. Everyone should be able to draw this. This is what they teach to poor medical school students who by the way, get treated like dirt. Uh, they have to work their butts off. They're, most of them are very unhealthy, but this is what they get taught. And vaccine science is based on this. But let me tell you what the real system is, okay? This is what the real immune system looks like, okay? And this is the science that I presented at the National Science Foundation about three weeks ago. The immune system is not just the innate and the adaptive. It's got all these other five boxes, the microbiome, the innate, the interferon system, and they all communicate. You see the microbiome, which is your gut, is connected to your brain. And the interferon system is a middle link. So when you go and just hit this adaptive immune system and you're measuring antibodies, it's bullshit science. There's a much more complexity here of many other things that are turned on. So if you wanna to talk to your neighbor, getting back to the answer, you go tell your neighbor, look, I learned from a guy who has an MIT PhD. He presented at the National Science Foundation and the, uh, the immune system, the two box model, by the way, is created in 1956 and 1915 at worst, it's hundred years old, at best it's 50 year old model. So we need to expand the notion of the immune system to a systems approach. And that model is a much more complicated model. So if you just give a vaccine, that could be affecting your microbiome. It could be turning off and turning on all sorts of stuff that we don't fully know. And to short circuit an immune system that took billions of years to create and a bunch of dweebs at MIT and Harvard and others who think they know better, it's bullshit. They don't know better. And you tell them that we can argue that, that you can argue that because all you need to do is show them this diagram and have them argue with you on this diagram. This, and they're by the way others, this is the modern theory of the immune system and what they're telling you is this is the immune system. It's bullshit. 
I hope that answers your question. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you guys have the confidence to go challenge any MD and PhD on that with those two diagrams. Go teach them that. And the issue of vaccines is the fact that the vaccine science is based on a 50-year-old model of understanding. Let's go to the next question. How many more do we have? Wow, we have 83 messages. <laughs> Let me just ask people, uh, do people want, it's what, 919. I'm gonna take 11 more minutes, uh, but I'm, I'm glad uh, everyone uh, is asking these questions. So let's go to the next one. Um, uh, yeah, Sarah Hooley says, we need tools to talk to neighbors. Moms are scared. And what I hear most is they do not feel confident to engage because people are so aggressive, like we're killing our kids, but not vaccinating. It's like, it's hard because it turns a mirror to their face and the fact they didn't do research. Okay, so again, Monday evenings, seven to nine, uh, seven to eight, we're offering this public session. Once you hear the public lecture, if you wanna educate, you let us know and we're giving a portal. Next Wednesday, the first portal training is taking place where we give you a tool all the slides are there where you can use those slides. And there's actually a dual pedagogy model where I'm talking, you can turn off my voice if you don't wanna hear it and you can start teaching others yourself. We give you all the slides. So you can go to that neighbor and say, look, I wanna spend 10 minutes with you. You can call Tupperware parties in your own home. Bring your neighbors in. We have to go for the long to win the short. Karina says, can we make a list of questions? Icebreakers long the lines of what you gave us as an example. Did you know? That's great, Karina. If you come up with those questions, we can load them up on the portal and we can share it to other people. Uh, James Nugent says, I'm just wondering what's the easiest and most in your face common sense way to get them to understand? James, the best thing I can tell you is you can start with saying, look, vaccines were developed on a theory of the immune system that's about 100 years old. Second sentence, the modern theory of the immune system is about five to 10 times more complicated. And they are using a very single threaded approach and it's not the complete science. You can say that and you can use those two diagrams I just shared. That's how you can start. The second thing you can talk about is we are at a point in biology where we're recognizing one size doesn't fit all. It's called personalized medicine. So if you're telling every kid they should get 30 vaccines, that's nonsense because even the pharmaceutical guys are understanding their drugs aren't working anymore. They even get it. Even the Mayo Clinic's uh, pollen said vaccines aren't working. So you can throw their own science in their face. So two points. The vaccine model is old, okay? We have to discuss this on their science. So let's beat them at their own game, on their own battleground. And the second piece is one size doesn't fit all. Those are the two things you can speak with confidence on. Um, Monday Senate hearing is in New Jersey. You have the conversation, but we need March in the streets. You said it, Michael. Michael nailed it. And, and what I would like to see you know, we can build up to this. We need to have a massive, massive, massive movement. And we need to go right into the enemy. And the enemy is Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts. I can tell you where the deep state of the world is. It's between MIT and Harvard. All the ills of the world come out of there, okay? 
all the deep state evil or all the intellectuals who come out of there. And I, as an insider, I can tell you that's where the deep state is. This is exactly how we lost in California. We need a steady guide sheet with key points. We have that on the portal, okay? Truth, freedom, and health. And we, the, the principles I lay out, laid out are on the portal. So I can, I, all I can encourage you is guys in Massachusetts, come out and help us on the street. Help out our campaign because it's going to be a, it's going to be a revolutionary campaign. If you're outside of Massachusetts, get on the portal and learn because we need to all get educated. Do you have time available to talk on the immune system? I will. I just shared it on Monday, December 16th. We'll be talking about it as a part of the systems training. What should I click on my new MC laptop to get the sound? I don't know what to do. You realize Trump, Trump is a controlled asset, right? He was bailed out. Look, uh, just to be clear on my position on Donald Trump, Donald Trump was a disruptive force. Uh, one of my colleagues who I know well, Noam Chomsky, which some people consider a far leftist, you know, uh, when I was an undergrad at MIT, you know, uh, I learned about the caste system. Uh, Noam guided me. Uh, Noam doesn't get everything right, but in 2007, when we were talking politics, Noam Chomsky and I felt that there was going to be someone who would come against the liberal elites because the liberal elites on the West Coast and the East Coast didn't give a damn about the white working class, for example, which are a majority of the working people in this country. And Donald Trump took advantage of that anger, but he did serve a disruptive force. Everyone now uses the word fake news. So I don't give a damn if he passes any bills. Um, you know, I don't care for the fact that he's brought all his family in, uh, but I can tell you this, that he has done a great service for this country by being a disruptive force, by, by going after both the Republican and Democrat establishment. Please do not read this aloud. Okay, I won't read that. I'll come back to that. Thank you so much for what you do. I just attended the public health hearing all day in Las Vegas. I'm confused. It's confusing. I'm not seeing enough forming here. So best to do is to talk. Well, let me see. Uh, I have five more minutes here. Um, looking at these questions. Uh, Jennifer, why can I not get on the chat with everyone? It's only going to Dr. Shiva. That's true. Uh, doctors, how do we get more medical professionals? Take a screenshot. Feds have a project, Healthy People 2020 to 2030, which vaccinated, mandated for all. What is the reason to fight what is the reason if all federal reps are corrupted? Look, great question. Um, the, in my view, you know, I've been involved in the uh, anti-GMO movement. Uh, we work with Vermont. You know, I, Neil Young invited me up there to speak. I, I wrote five papers, anti-war movement, all those movements. What I find amazing about this movement against uh, the, 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 the control of our medical freedom fundamentally and the attack on truth, freedom, and health is this. It's working mothers. Most movements have been, you know, the long-haired students, and then after they leave college, they cut their hair and go to Wall Street, right? It's their dilettantes. This movement has amazing women who care about their children. They're not, uh, they want to fight, they need to fight, but they're being misled by the not-so-obvious establishment. That is why there's so much power in this movement if people grow a very strong spine 
and they realize that they should not take one inch from the not so obvious establishment who tries to tell them to shut the hell up. And that is when this movement will grow because as this person points out, the entire vaccine model is not about vaccines. It's much deeper. This is really about testing how much they can get away with controlling our freedom. I'll repeat that. This is not about vaccines. This is about subverting your innate immune system and telling people that they're gonna control the blood supply or the bloodstream of everyday citizens. It's quite extraordinary. That's what this is about. And it's really a testing ground to see how much they can get away with. So I would argue, and Massachusetts is the center of this. If you go to Kendall Square, the one mile radius around Kendall Square, you, you know who you'll see? You'll see Monsanto has her, one of their head office there. Pfizer has her head office. Google has her head office. Facebook has her head office. MIT is there. Amazon, every major, Microsoft is there. It is the epicenter of the deep state, Kendall Square. And what occurs in Massachusetts will reverberate not only throughout this country, but throughout the world. And, and you know, my Senate election is about the untouchable kid who came from India who will go against an aristocrat, probably Joe Kennedy. And this election in 2020, I believe is going to be not just about me against one of them, but it's going to be about do we as a people have a chance to get someone who will represent you? And that's why I'm running, because it's not really about me, but it's about truth, freedom, and health versus power, profit, and control. And Massachusetts is where all, you know, all the British who lost in Massachusetts, they didn't get up and leave, guys. They didn't go back to London. They embedded themselves in the blue blood of Massachusetts. And they think they're better than everyone. And they control both parties. So it's not ironic that Charlie Baker, who's a Republican governor, and Bill Weld, who are Republicans, actually are supporting a Democrat against me. Think about that. They would rather have an aristocrat like Joe Kennedy than an untouchable kid from India who grew up in, in, in working class towns in New Jersey, winning even their own nomination. How do we argue when presented with the immunocompromised argument? Yeah, let me rent. This is a great, great question on the vaccine question. So the argument is this. You have all these people, and the argument is a social justice argument, which says there are, by the way, one out of 2,000 people in the United States are in what is called primary immunocompromised. So what is 300 million people roughly out of one out of 2,000? I think it's about 150,000 people, okay? If you work out the math. So about 150,000 people out of the 300 million people in the United States are primary immunocompromised. Secondary immunocompromised are about 250,000 more people, diabetes, et cetera. So they're saying to protect that one over 2,000, which is, work out the numbers, one out of 1,000 is 0.1%, so it's 0.05%. So for all of us to protect that 0.05% of people for different vaccines, so for uh, measles, 95% of the 300 million need to get vaccinated. Everyone following me? Okay. So to protect this 0.05% of people who may be undergoing chemotherapy or uh, that 95, now how do they come up with that number? It's a model, a mathematical model. Okay. No different than those climate models, which are, which are, 
And by the way, that number went up from 70, 80, 85, now it's 95%. Now the assumption is that the people who get vaccinated of that 95%, that, that any collateral damage that comes from that vaccine injury, let's say 1% get vaccine injured, even 1%. Well, that's 40 times, uh, sorry, 10 would be 0.5%, uh, 20 times more than the immunocompromised people. So what they're saying is, well, if they get damaged, well, they can go to the vaccine courts. So they have set up this entire model knowing that vaccines probably or do cause injury, and it's okay, that's like collateral damage in a war. So the way to argue this point is that the social justice warrior argument is like, in order, you know, we have to protect the minority, but which minority? That means they don't care about the minority of the people who are gonna get vaccine injured, because there is a risk. And as a scientist, I can tell you that the complexity of the immune system the risk is greater than 0% that someone is getting injured. And if the risk is greater than 0%, you must give people choice, period. I'll take the last question, which says, please create a resource for us mothers who need a pediatrician. Doctors are firing us from their practice. I dialogue to have in their offices. That is what we, what I will do is I will reduce this to a one pager. That's what I'm hearing. Karina said it a set of questions and the argument. We'll make it a cheat sheet, okay? And we'll put it up on the portal for everyone. Anyway, um, uh, thank you from Gwen. It's a movement like nothing before. What's the prognosis for the MA bills? So uh, my view on the prognosis is because of the hell we raised, they are doing a course correction right now. And that course correction is they may throw a bone to us. Maybe they'll table it. Maybe they'll vote against it. But what I'm here to tell you is the reason they did that is they don't want this not a good Indian guy, you know, getting other people fired up, okay? They don't want mothers getting fired up. They don't want you guys showing your defiance. And they may throw a bone to us to quell the movement. But I'm here to tell you it's a quote-unquote victory, even if they table it, even if they postpone it, that regardless of what they do, we need to build a movement. I hope you understand that. And there are some people who try to say, oh, we got a victory. It's not a victory. We need to build a movement. And that is what I hope you understand. So in conclusion, the key takeaways from today are Monday, December 16th, it's a workshop. We will upgrade our, if you want it, after you go, we want everyone to go through the public training. Then we will, uh, Jennifer Bennett and her team will train you how to use the portal. You can log in. It's got great tools. You can actually use systems thinking to understand your body as a system. You can get access to tr teach other people's systems. You get access to the truth, freedom, and health. And we'll also add this cheat sheet that I'm hearing uh, coming up. But the most important thing is we must build a dynamic movement by the people for the people and to hell with these legislators, to hell with the discussion being funneled in. Because the only thing that they fear is a fear of God of people rising up. And that is a fear that we need to put into them to get even a crumb. Okay? I hope this was valuable. And I look forward to you guys uh, having conversations and anything we can do to catalyze that. We will do. If, if people want me to come and speak somewhere and help, please let us know. Um, action step, if you want to support the campaign, go to shivaforsenate.com. Uh, if you want to uh, help us on the ground, uh, help us. We want to 
educate people. You know, our campaign is going to be truth, freedom, and health. And we're going to make it a revolutionary campaign, not some suck-ass campaign just to get elected into the Senate. We're not going to be good senators speaking their way. It's, I'm not going to be a good Indian. And we're not all going to be good Indians, okay? We're going to be fighters. Thank you very much. Everyone have a great evening. Be well.